You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings. We're going to dive into this quick. We're going to land the ship on time. So hold on. How's that? Okay, okay, okay. Welcome to week three of what I did not anticipate would be a series. I uh, kind of thought it would be a standalone message. Yeah, if you want to grab notes, there they are. Um, thought we'd have a standalone message on Elisha and Elijah, and I have just been sucked into the story of Elisha. Sometimes I sit down and I go, okay, what, what does the church need to hear? What, you know, what are the parts we're missing? And, and we, we come up with, with material that way. But the most beautiful times for me are when he's just speaking to me and I'm going, oh, let's talk about this. And so that is where we are in this. Let me tell you right now where this message is going in case we hit the clock and I have to crash land it. At least you'll get to the end of it quickly. My belief is this, that the Lord wants to do something powerful in and through the bridge. I believe he wants to use us as a tool, but also as a receptacle. And what he has plans for are tremendous, okay? That is my belief. I believe that as much as my own name. Along with my belief, I have a theory. My theory is this. We can thwart it. He has a plan. It's beautiful. It's huge. But he's not going to force it on us, and we can actually thwart it by not being ready to receive it. You don't buy your five-year-old a set of steak knives, okay? No, that's not a personal story. We didn't do that. I'm just saying, you wouldn't do that. It would be irresponsible to give him something that he is not ready for. And God is not likely to pour his spirit out on a place where we have not fully prepared to receive it and to steward it. The preparation for that is both internal in our hearts and external It's things we do within ourselves, and it's things we prepare for others who will come. Few churches walk that balance well of doing the heart preparation and building the systems to contain people. The internal work is heart preparation, and it attracts God. And I want to tell you a very brief story about how a group of people attracted the heart of the Lord. This is the ramp up to what is known as the Hebrides Revival. How many of you know where the Hebrides Islands are? Some of you? Off the northwest coast of Scotland, there are these beautiful islands called the Hebrides. And two world wars had reduced the Christian community in the Hebrides Islands to almost nothing. It was a cultural expression, nothing more. There was no fire on it. There was no anointing. There was really not much leadership. It was dead. And the presbytery, or the regional leaders of the church, wrote a letter to the churches on the Isle of... Oh, i got to get the island right. Somebody know which one? No. Should have written it down. One of the islands of the Hebrides, they wrote this, this letter to... And let me just read you an excerpt of this letter. It tells them that they need to... Considering that there are no, there's no life on the church, it says... Take these matters to heart and make serious inquiry of what must be the end if there be no repentance. Where does this go if we don't get right with God? 
We call upon every individual as before God to examine his or her life in light of that responsibility. He says, hey, look at what's going on here. This thing's dying on the vine, and if we don't do something, what's going to happen? That letter, we only have a documented response to that really by two people. Sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. Throw, throw the picture of the Smith girls here, will you? Oh, there they are. Christine and Peggy Smith. Peggy was 82. She was doubled over with arthritis. And Christine was 84. She was blind. Christine and Peggy called the community to pray. They said, let's pray every night. Those prayer meetings were attended by Peggy and Christine. Nobody else came. But they started this nightly prayer meeting, and one night, one of the sisters had a vision of the churches of the island being filled with young people. Even though church records, that which were very detailed in the day, tell us there was nobody that could even remotely be described as young in the most creative of ways attending the churches. So she approached her pastor. She said, I had a vision of the church being full of young people. And uh, he did what pastors do when they don't know what to do. They said, well, what do you think we should do? She told him, I love this. She said, if you do your part, we'll do ours. You gather the elders to pray two nights a week and wait on God. And if you pray until 10 o'clock, my sister and I will pick it up and we'll pray till two or three in the morning. He agreed, and so they did this for three months. And in three months, absolutely nothing happened. Just dry as a doornail, dead prayer meetings. The elders would meet twice a week, and then the, the sisters would take it till three in the morning. And they prayed regularly around Isaiah 44.3. I will pour out water on him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. I will pour my spirit out on thy seed and my blessings on the offspring. They prayed this over and over and over and over. And one night, a young elder stood up in the meeting, and he was reading Psalm 24, and he said, who should ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place unless he has clean hands and a pure heart? And this young elder stopped the prayer meeting, and he said, brethren, it seems to me that this would be so much humbug, I love that, so much humbug, to be waiting and praying as we are if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And he lifted his hands and he says, Oh God, are my hands clean and is my heart pure? When he did this, he, the, the record records he fell to the ground as if he were dead. And he laid there for hours as the Lord examined his heart and revealed things to his heart. And revival began to break out on the island in little pockets, little prayer meetings here, little prayer meetings there, but nothing that could be ignored. Fast forward about six weeks, and the sisters invite Duncan Campbell, a revivalist, to come and steward what they believe God wanted to do. And he said, you know, I've got other meetings. I don't think I'll come, but, you know, thank you for inviting me. And Peggy Smith, the 82-year-old, the younger one, Peggy tells him, Mr. Campbell, if you were living as near to God as you ought to be, he would reveal his secrets to you also. She shamed him into coming. Shame is a powerful motivator. 
He agreed to come. The night he arrives at the Hebrides, he gets there, it's 9 o'clock at night when he gets off the ship, and he's thinking they're going to take me to my host home, you know, maybe you know, grab Taco Bell on the way, I don't know, but you know, it's, a, it's the end of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the Hebrides. Nothing happens after 9 o'clock in the Hebrides. They said, no, no, we, we have a meeting. They take him to the church. About 300 people gathered there. He preaches a message. Nothing happens. By 1045, everybody leaves. It's over. And this young deacon stands there and he goes, this doesn't feel right. Nothing is broken out tonight, but God is hovering over us. And he's willing to break through at any moment. And this young man starts to pray and he prays God's word back to him. The most powerful prayers you will pray are the ones that are just holding God to his word. It's one of the reasons our our men's prayer meeting, we read a passage, we pray through it. We're like, Lord, help us hammer ourselves in line with the word. And he prays, God, you made a promise to pour water out on dry and thirsty ground, and you are not doing it. Ten minutes later, somebody walks in and says, "Uh, Mr. Campbell, you need to see what's going on here. They go open the back doors of the church. There's a hundred people gathered to come in. He's looking at them. He doesn't recognize any of them from the first meeting. They're all young people. They all had been at a dance hall down the street. When conviction had hit the dance hall, they all suddenly stopped and said, it was written later that they said they fled the dance hall like they were fleeing the the plague and ran to the doors of the church. Simultaneously, across the island, people were being woken up in their beds and had this drawing to go to the church. I think I may have a picture of this church. Do I? It's, it seats about 800. In minutes, it's full. He doesn't bother to preach. Conviction falls. They have a prayer meeting in this building until four in the morning. People weeping under the power of God. When the meeting is over... Somebody said, "Uh, Mr. Duncan, you need to go to the police department. So he walks through the village. As he goes through the village, he's passing little gatherings of prayer, all people that didn't make it to the original meeting. He gets to the police station, and under a streetlight, there are 300 people gathered praying at an impromptu meeting at 4 in the morning. For four years, the spirit of prayer rested so heavily on the Hebrides Islands, they were never able to build enough churches to contain what God was doing. Little side street prayer meetings, people coming to the Lord every which way. By the end of, of the four years, there were essentially nobody in the, on the island that wasn't converted. Because two little old women dug the ditches that needed to be dug to contain what God wanted to do in that place. Now, we're going to dive into a passage here in 2 Kings where the word of the Lord, I'm just going to spill the beans, the word of the Lord is dig ditches. And how we get there. Two weeks ago, I taught on the transition of the mantle or anointing from Elijah to Elisha. And I just got pulled into that story. This is not a case when we talk about Elisha having a double anointing. It doesn't mean that he was doing it better than Elijah. He was doing it very differently than Elijah. If you want to drag Elijah and Elisha from 850 BC into the 1960s, they are completely different people. Elijah is Mick Jagger. He is loud. He owns the stage. He, like, the arena follows him. And Elisha is Bob Dylan. Song's too long. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Doesn't rhyme. They can't understand him. Like, he's just a completely different person. He doesn't, he doesn't hold the attention. 
He, in fact, sometimes they don't even know who he is. You know, mid-2000s, Bob Dylan was touring. He went for a walk, and the police picked him up. They thought he was homeless. They said, what's your name? He said, Bob Dylan. They said, what's really your name? He said, Thomas Zimmerman. Both those things were true. They put him in the cop car. And Elisha was that kind of character. He just didn't seek attention. We've, we're going to look at the fourth miracle, in essence, of his life. The first one, he strikes the Jordan, crosses over on the dry. The second miracle, he pours the salt in the well and cleanses the land at Jericho. The third miracle, it's a miracle or a happening. It's just weird. But we're going to read it so nobody can say that I avoided it and say, oh, you skipped it. You just went to the easy ones. No. 2 Kings chapter 2, 23 to 25. He went up from there to Bethel. Remember, he went up because in Jericho, everything's up from Jericho. It's down in the hole. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys, stop for a second. I'm reading from the ESV, probably not the best translation here. These were young adults, okay? Every other translation talks about youths. So think maybe 20, 20 years old. And lots of them, at least 42, we'll learn in a minute. So there's this mob, okay? This mob of young boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head. Stop. Okay, go up. What are they saying there? Go up. Of course he's going up. No, they are saying, why don't you go the way Elijah went? They're actually rejecting the prophetic. Elijah came. He's gone. Why don't you, why don't you go up in the whirlwind too? We don't want to hear your voice. We've made this out to be a weird story about bears attacking young people. It's actually about people rejecting the prophetic. Like that's the point of the story. That and disrespect. Then they say, you bald head. Okay, now, granted, I have a dog in this fight, okay? But, <laughs> but, we think of this little old bald man being cheered. No, he lives another 50 years. He's a young man here, okay? So he's this young man going up. He's been baptized into the prophetic, and these young people come out, and they reject it, and the story goes on to say that he turned to them and he basically turns them over to the Lord and a couple of she-bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of them, okay? It's, it's a, we get caught up in the bear part. We completely miss the part that they've rejected the prophetic and they've rejected the messenger that the Lord has sent them. The moral of the story is not that we shouldn't make fun of bald people, although I do stand on that. The moral of the story is when you recognize that somebody has the hand of the Lord on them, use your words carefully. Not because they are special, but because you're dealing with more than an individual there. Paul himself apologized for speaking harshly about the high priest who was a corrupt man. He's like, yeah, but he's got a role. We have so distanced ourselves from honoring leaders that our only takeaway about this story is, man, the bear thing is harsh. But there was a mob rejecting the prophetic. So that's, that's the whole story. I just wanted to touch on that so nobody could accuse me of skipping it. But all roads lead to this fourth miracle in 2 Kings chapter 3 that I want to call digging ditches of faith to receive what God has for us. You don't have a lot of stories encouraging you to be ditch diggers, okay? There just aren't a lot of those, but there is one here. Let's put it in the context, 2 Kings chapter 3, 1 through 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became the king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, although not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the saying of Jeroboam, sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. So much in this context here. What, what is going on with Jeroboam? Okay, Jeroboam, his parents were Ahab and Jezebel. Okay, 
So he gets on the train of history at Dysfunction Junction. All right? Mom and dad, little jacked up. That is his entrance to the world. And the scripture says he wasn't as bad as his parents, but he was still bad. Okay? Let's all strive to be a little more than just a little better than mom and dad. They said that he participated in the sins of Jeroboam. Well, what are the sins of Jeroboam? Well, we find those in the story of Jeroboam. You go to 1 Kings chapter 12, 28 through 30. The king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. So long story short here, this king, Jeroboam, made a form of idolatry that had all the trappings of the Hebraic faith. He was still an idolater. He just used some of the symbolism. of, And that is exactly what Jehoram did. So Jeroboam set up this Hebraic version of idolatry, paid lip service to God of the Hebrews, but it was a political ploy to stay in power. But it was insincere. That's what Jehoram did. Well, he didn't return to the idolatry of his past. He just came up with his own. Never underestimate your own ability to come up with your own idols. All right? You can reject your parents and build your own and you'll be just fine. You do it. Now remember, God's people had split at this time into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, or Judah and Israel. Jehoram is the king over the northern kingdom. And he's about to go pick a fight that's going to demand that he gets the band back together. He's like, we got to do something here and we're going to go fight Moab and so I need to reconcile with that other kingdom for a little bit. This is what the fight is over. 2 Kings 3, 4 to 8. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Moab was an area that had been founded by the son of Lot, or the nephew of Abraham. And about the time that he split off from Abraham's family, everything went sideways. He quickly rejected the God of Abraham and came up with his own God that they called Chemosh. And over the history in the Old Testament, there was constant conflict with the Moab, Moabites. Saul fought with the Moabites. David fought with the Moabites. Solomon tried another approach and married a Moabite princess. And, and Solomon ended up with a Chemosh God in Jerusalem. Never go to bed with who you should go to war with. And if you wonder how the Bible reconciles all of this with human history, in 1868, they discover this thing, a missionary to Jordan, this thing called the Moabite stone. It's a 44-inch stone that has written in their language all of the details of the people and the years and when all this happened. Now... To be fair, the Moabites interpret things a little differently than the people of God do. If you read their account, like they won the battle, it's a little bit like switching back and forth between Fox and CNN. Same story, very different angles. Okay, so the Moabite stone doesn't tell the story exactly, but all of the characters are there. My point is, Moabite's long-term adversary and Jehoram's father had forced him to pay tribute. When Ahab dies, Moab says, new king in town, and we're not going to pay. So Jehoram decides to go and enforce the deal. 2 Kings chapter 3, 6 through 10. 
So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at the time and mustered all of Israel. He went and sent a word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I'll go. I am with you as are my people and my horses are as your horses. Then he said, which way should we march? Jehoram answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went to the king of Judah and to the king of Edom, and they made a circuitous route of march of seven days, and there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So they consult which way should we go. Let's go around to the south. They don't think about the fact there's no water. They wander seven days with their army and their animals, and they're dry and they're thirsty. It's not going well. They're getting ready to go into battle and they're exhausted. And finally, in fear of their lives, Jehoshaphat does what no man wants to do on a road trip. Ask for help, right? Nobody wants to do this. But in 2 Kings 3, 11 to 12, Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here? Like, can we find a prophet anywhere through whom we might inquire of the Lord? Then one of the King of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I don't know much about him, but he carried water for Elijah. He must be good. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So they become very concerned with their fate when they realize they can't do it on their own. They need somebody and they suddenly get interested in the things of God. This is equivalent of a young married couple having their first child, okay? You see young folks that will check out somewhere about their sophomore year of high school and all of a sudden they've got a family. And, oh, we've got we to figure out what the Lord is saying. There's a crisis. We've got to learn who God is. So they do this and somebody remembers that, oh, there's this prophet Elisha. And let's hear what he has to say. Friends, if you understand what the Lord says about something, it doesn't matter if they know your name. They will find you. There is such a hunger for truth that if you get just a little bit of revelation, you can, like, people will find you. When we lived in Washington, D.C., and we had 70 interns that would pray every night in a little prayer room, it wasn't unusual for powerful political figures to come into this stinky little prayer room that smelled like 70 college students and say, I want to know what the Lord is saying. And we would take a couple of interns back into a side room and they would pray and prophesy over these guys. So these kings go and they find the guy and all they know is he carried water for Elijah. Maybe he'll have the word of the Lord. 2 Kings 3, 13 to 15, Elijah responds. He says, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, the prophets of your mother. Tells him, you're, you're Ahab and, and Jezebel's boy, aren't you? Go back, ask your parents' prophets what they have to say. But the king of Israel said, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I'd neither look nor see. He's like, I would look right past you. It's just one of you I respect. So because of that, I'll answer you. Bring me a musician. What? He says, bring me a musician. And when the music played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. That's why probably our worship is the most important part of our service. 
Because the Lord moves on the wings of music because God is a singer. He sings over us. And when we worship, he joins us in those songs. So they bring him a musician, and he begins to prophesy. And the first thing he says is, 2 Kings 3.16, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. You can kind of see the three kings going, uh, that's not the word I was looking for. Make that, why? Ditches. I'm just, I want to, what? Why do we need to make that? It's interesting in a religion where key, the key principle is that the first will be last and there are rewards for hiddenness and there are rewards for being humble that when people think about ministry, they often think about platforms and being up in front of people and Elisha says, dig ditches. Get low, get a shovel, and dig a pit. Nobody feels called to the ministry of digging ditches. Okay, like nobody lays in bed at night going, someday I'm going to dig me some ditches. You get dirty, you get sore. There's a reason nobody wants the job. Why did he tell them to dig ditches? They were on their way to go to war. To stop and to dig a ditch seems less than productive. But the ditches that he would have them dig right now would be the channels for the water and provision that God wanted to send. And if they didn't dig these ditches now, either he doesn't send it or if he does send it, they lose it. The ditches they would dig now were provision for what God was going to send. 2 Kings 3.17, For thus saith the Lord, You will not see wind, nor will you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals will drink. You can almost hear the, things, the kings thinking, Find a weird prophet, get a weird word. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? It's an unusual promise. We're supposed to dig ditches so we can get water and you're telling us it's not going to rain. The water's just going to come. As I was studying for this this week and reading this, I just had this real sense that Elijah's word to the bridge would be dig ditches. Make containers for what he wants to send. Make containers in our heart, dig ditches in prayer, but also in a very practical way, dig ditches and begin to build systems that will hold the people that God wants to send or either he does not send them or when he sends them, they run off because there was no place for them. Now, I'm sure it's happened, but I cannot think of a church that I've been involved with that had a more unusual launch, right? We didn't launch so much as we fell in the water and called ourselves a boat, okay? Like, there are, there are structures and plans to do this in a logical way, none of which we did, nor which would have been able at the time, okay? Let's meet for prayer, and two weeks into that, a pandemic strikes. So we go to, it's like everything about this has been... And it's been beautiful to the Lord. I, like, I, I have no regrets, but I have awareness. And the awareness is, if we're not careful, we stay in this mode of thinking that life happens to us 
rather than saying, at some point, we've got to dig some ditches. At some point, we have to put our hand to the plow and do things in order to prepare to receive what God has for us. We need some ditches dug because the Lord wants to send people and he wants to pour himself out. We need ditches dug in prayer. Guys, if you're able to join us tomorrow morning, join us, 6 a.m. We're digging ditches. It's very glamorous. We are all beautiful at 6 a.m. You think we're kind of homely now. You should see us at 6 a.m. It's little, rough, and ugly, but we're digging ditches. And it's building a place for the Lord to do something. The ladies that pray every morning, they've been doing it for a year or more. They're digging ditches. It counts. We also need practical ditches dug. We need space to gather during the week. We need it bad. We need funds to do that with. We need to find the right place. We need people to step up and go, you know what, I can help with kids. And I feel like it's my ministry as much as I feel digging ditches is. But it needs to be done to receive and to care for kids. We desperately need to launch a second and third class for for more children to serve them well. It's digging ditches. We've got to have somebody today to dig a ditch by going to the grocery store and buying some groceries. It won't cost you anything. We just need that person to do the work. And none of this is glamorous and none of this is what people think of when they think of ministry. But you know what? It touches people's lives. And it actually prepares the ground for the fullness of what God wants to do, even among us. 2 Kings 3, 18 says, this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Providing is a simple matter. And he said, I will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Verse 20 says, it happened in the morning. The Lord gave them everything they needed because they were faithful to dig ditches. You've got to wonder what would have happened had they rejected the word to do the work of preparing for what God wanted to do. I think it had passed him over. I don't want to be passed over if God has a plan. I just can't bear that thought. I'm going to ask if Rachel would step up. We just want to close in worship. And let me challenge you. Begin to ask the Lord what ditches he might have you dig. What can you put your hand to? You're looking around. I got an email from somebody this week going, hey, I'm all in. How can I help? Like, thank you. A couple of emails. We knew exactly what what they were able to do, and and they're going to plug in doing that. But we, we need to dig ditches because he has more, and I don't want to miss it. It isn't about building an empire. It isn't about... It's about making space for the fullness of what he wants to do and making space for your neighbors to encounter him as well. Stand with me. Father, we receive the word that Elijah gave to the kings about digging ditches, about doing the hard work in our own hearts, but with our hands. What can we do We don't want to just assume that when we get what we get, we want to prepare for all you have for us. In Jesus' name. How-
Father, even in a dry and weary land, we ask that you would help us to dig ditches and then we hold you to your word. Some of you are hanging on to promises that you've almost let go of because it seemed like it's been so long. He's stirring that in your heart this morning. He's asking you to believe and he's asking you to dig the ditches and prepare for prayer. I'll be up front. Jackman's will be around. Be happy to pray with you about anything you need to pray with. Take a minute to say hello to Stephanie. Father, pray a blessing over the bridge. Help us to dig the ditches where you need them to hold what you want to hold. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing, if somebody's able to make that grocery run and dig that ditch for me, see me afterwards. Talk. Thanks. God bless you.